listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. It's Friday, February 10th, 2020. I'm your host, Jack Armstrong. Coming up on today's show, we hear about a controversy that has spiraled in recent weeks over a first-year CU Boulder student living at the school with known ties to hate groups. After that, it's Sports Talk with Jimmy Searfoss and .org, our weekly look at local nonprofits. At 8.30, connections will come your way. As always, the phone lines will be open and your calls welcome. At 9.30, Meredith Carson is in the Boulder Station bringing you this morning sound alternative. Two and a half hours of eclectic music until noon. That's all still ahead this morning, but first the headlines with KGNU's Stacy Johnson. The Suncor Refinery in Commerce City announced Thursday it's restarting its Plant 2 operation that produces gasoline, fuel, and diesel. The refinery had closed in December after a cold snap damaged the equipment. A company spokesperson told the Denver Post it will take several days for Plant 2 to return to normal operations. The company plans on restarting its other plants by the end of March. The U.S. Energy Information Administration said Wednesday the refinery shutdown has elevated the state's gasoline prices, with consumer costs likely remaining high as fuel demand grows in the warmer weather months. Colorado Parks and Wildlife officials said Thursday the agency has identified several cases of avian flu in free-ranging wildlife. The agency confirmed the highly pathogenic disease was discovered in three mammals between October and January, including a black bear in Herfano County, a skunk in Weld County, and a mountain lion in Gunnison County. Wildlife officials say the three mammals showed signs of avian flu, such as seizures, lack of responsiveness to human presence, and organ damage. Other mammal cases in the state are pending confirmation. The agency says despite the variety of mammal species susceptible to avian flu, the number of cases are currently low, and most cases associated with the outbreak are in wild and domestic birds. Colorado Parks and Wildlife confirmed the first strain of avian flu in March 2022 from wild geese in northwest Colorado. A gathering of scholars and doctoral students at a Hyatt Regency suite at the Colorado Convention Center say they were subject to racist intrusion Wednesday when hotel security broke up the group, citing noise complaints. KGNU's Benita Lee has more. The group says they were attending a convention of the National Association of School Psychologists. The organization's black president, Dr. Celeste Malone, was hosting the gathering in the hotel suite. Attendees of the gathering told Colorado Public Radio's Denverite that after Malone requested a plate of cookies from the front desk, the hotel instead sent security to, quote, assess the situation and instructed three tenured scholars of color to, quote, not get too rowdy. Hotel security then arrived later around 9.15 p.m. and cleared the room with attendees being instructed to show ID. One attendee told Denverite that when she arrived at the party about 20 minutes earlier, she heard no noise in the hallway. The attendee also claimed that a party she attended Tuesday evening that was predominantly white and had many more people with loud music did not get interrupted by hotel security. As of Thursday evening, Denverite says hotel management and security have not responded to requests for comment. For KGNU, I'm Benita Lee. The family of a Loveland woman with dementia who experienced a violent police arrest in 2020 said in a statement this week they are shocked and confused that former officer Austin Hopp is up for parole. Hopp received a conviction last year for breaking Karen Garner's arm, separating her shoulder, and spraining her wrist during the arrest. 
He also did not give her medical attention while he and others joked about her injuries. Hop so far has served nine months of his five-year prison term and will appear in court next week as a potential candidate for a community con- corrections program. The family said Hop's plea deal did not even provide an opportunity for parole until April 2024. The Longmont City Council decided earlier this week to hold off discussions forming a community name change committee that would review troublesome and offensive street names. Council members voted unanimously in late January to discuss forming the committee, but Councilperson Tim Waters argued during Tuesday's study session that although he did not oppose the committee, he thought Longmont had more pressing matters and that staff already had enough on their plate. Waters further argue that he has not had a constituent who has complained about the name of their street. Councilperson Marsha Martin said Longmont residents were not receptive to the committee formation on social media as they claimed that city council had time to change street names but not fix whatever citizens are complaining about. Councilperson Sean McCoy, who made the original motion on the issue, remarked that community leaders should not wait for constituents to be outraged to react to cultural insensitivity. According to the Daily Camera, council members voted to table the discussion until they identify priorities during their upcoming retreat. For today's weather for winter bike to work day, the National Weather Service says skies will be sunny with a high of 50 degrees for Denver, 47 degrees for Boulder, and a high of near 43 degrees for Fort Collins. Winds will be light and variable throughout the day. Tonight, skies will remain clear with a low 20 for Fort Collins, 28 degrees for Boulder, and 26 degrees for Denver. For KGNU, I'm Stacy Johnson. You're listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm Jack Armstrong. A controversy at CU Boulder has sparked debate over freedom of speech and institutional responsibility. It started when, a few weeks back, flyers began to appear across campus with the picture of a male first-year student who lived in one of the school's dorms. At the top of the poster was the headline, A Nazi Activist Lives on Campus. The CU Independent reported on the story and found that CU Boulder's administrators had known of the student's white supremacist ties before he stepped foot on campus this fall. According to the reports, administrators refused to give comment about the case. A few days after the story came out, CU officials notified CU Independent that the student was no longer enrolled. KGNU's Alexis Kenyon spoke with Henry Larson, the editor-in-chief of the CU Independent, who broke the story last week. Henry, to, to start, tell me about these flyers and how you found yourself reporting on this story. How did it play out? Yeah, this, is, this was probably the most challenging story I've had to report on personally. So, you know, I learned about this story just about the same time as the flyers started appearing around campus. But the story itself actually goes back into May of last year. One of these left-wing advocacy groups, I think called Sunrise 161, published this information about a student who went to a high school in Colorado, who they said had ties to Patriot Front, which is a white nationalist, white supremacist group in the United States. And that information was available online, but didn't pick up all that much traction. 
Now, fast forward to January of this year and a different left-wing advocacy group, the Colorado Springs Anti-Fascist Group, published another article about this student now saying that he attends CU Boulder with information about his violent speech, his affiliations. And they include in this blog post that they put online an image of a flyer that they want people to post around campus. And so it picks up some traction and members, at least of the young Democratic Socialists of America, maybe others, end up putting these posters around campus. They end up right in front of the, the UMC, which is like the big student union. They end up on like those poster roundel where people will promote events on campus. And so they, they make their way around campus and people start reacting to it and start to become quite worried about the idea of a, a white nationalist uh, being a member of the university community. Right. And so you actually interviewed the stu student who you identified as Patrick Durnham. He was a freshman living in the dorms. Tell me about this interview. I mean, how did it go? Also, how did you get in touch with him? Did you just email him or? Well, we, we did just email him. I, I shot him an email to his university email address and he responded to me that evening. We set up an interview for the next day. I spoke with him in person and the interview lasted for about 40 minutes. We talked about the information on the posters. He told me a lot about his history with the groups. And he also, you know, confirmed that he was a member of Patriot Front and that some of the most violent social media posts where he encouraged the killing of black people and immigrants were his, that he had posted them. One of the things that we were debating in the story was how much voice to give these violent statements. And you can find them elsewhere online. It's vitriolic and, and pretty awful. And so we made the decision not to include that language. But the rest of the interview was, um, was pretty normal. It was intense, but he was polite for the most part. And we ended the interview shortly thereafter. And then we, we published a story about a week after I conducted that interview. Did he seem embarrassed or upset? I mean, he had posters all over campus and people outraged that he was even there. I imagine for a teenage boy, that would be a lot. No, he did not. He did not seem embarrassed or upset. I mean, what did you think about that? It was noteworthy, I think. It was something that impacted the way we reported on our story. He actually said, and we quoted him in the story when he said he did not apologize for these comments that he had made. He did not apologize for his affiliations with these groups. And I think that's important to note because, you know, as, as we reported on later in the piece, there is, you know, some secondhand accounts by police and witnesses that he still has ties to, to these groups that like Patriot Front. But we also spoke to lots of interest groups, people, residents on campus, um, who said that they were concerned. They were concerned to walk on campus being who they are, whether that's, you know, Jewish or a first-generation student. Um, I've never had to grant anonymity to so many sources in reporting the story purely because they believed um, their physical safety was at risk. I feel like one one thing that made this story particularly interesting is 
because, you know, as much as it's about students feeling unsafe because of someone's affiliation with hate groups, the student was also in some ways being persecuted for his beliefs and his affiliation with a political group, even if that group is, is a hateful one, which, you know, makes the it makes the whole morality of it just more muddy. I think so. I think political group perhaps is the wrong word to use in this instance. This isn't white nationalism isn't political in the sense that Turning Point USA or Young Democratic Socialists of America is political. Those are political groups that both lean on, you know, one particular side of the political spectrum pretty heavily. But this student told me he published a post in which he said that he wanted to shoot up an immigration center. It was framed as a lightheartedly in the, in the post, the social media post. But these were violent comments. It wasn't political in the sense that he was a member of these groups and was advocating online for the most hateful and most violent of their beliefs. So shortly after your story came out, the university told you that the student had been unenrolled. Um, it wasn't clear if he'd been kicked out or if he left voluntarily. Do you think this controversy will spark any type of reform when it comes to the university's policies on this type of thing? Well, it's hard to say exactly. One, because of how little the university is willing to share about its responses to a specific case. There's privacy concerns to deal with. It also creates a precedent where if they speak to me about one specific incident, they have to do so in the future. Uh, we tried to ask members of the committee, the post-conduct or the post-admission conduct review committee, it's a mouthful, about their procedures and the decisions they would make in typical circumstances. But they said flat out that they wouldn't speak to us, even in the most general of terms, um, because they felt it would create a bad precedent. So I don't know what the university believes its obligation to be is. I know that they, in their policy and in the law, they have an obligation to protect the free speech of students and also to provide for campus safety to ensure that people feel comfortable on campus and that the learning environment isn't disrupted. Um, but I would not be able to tell you if um, any of this was going to cause concerns or reverberations further down the line, purely because they have not shared that information with me. And I don't believe they will going forward. Well, what about the student body? I mean, what's the reaction to the article, Ben? Has it sparked any type of community discussion among students? I think it has. I think I've seen commentary online in particular and, you know, internet groups specifically relating to CU Boulder, people asking the questions that you are, which is, what is the university's responsibility when deciding to admit someone who has views that many would believe to be hateful? And should someone like that be welcomed to CU Boulder? Do, do left-wing adv advocacy groups create a bad precedent by posting someone's picture around campus uh, saying that people should be warned and should be cautious around this person. Those are all questions, debates worth 
having. And I think ultimately it comes down to what the university's particular interest is in terms of the types of people it likes to have on campus, the types of people that feel safe on campus. If there's one thing we heard over and over again from interested interest groups, people with concerns about this issue, it was a white nationalist on campus makes them feel unsafe, makes them feel like they can't be who they are when they attend class. That I think is the side that would tell you someone who is a part of Patriot Front, who has said these kinds of things, does not deserve to be on university campus. And on the other hand, there's probably plenty of people who would say this is a chance for this person who is under the First Amendment, very much allowed to say these kinds of things, very much allowed to be a part of these groups. This is, this is his chance to, to sh see a broader world, to gain a broader perspective, a broader understanding. So it's a difficult balancing act, no matter which side someone tends to agree with more. Henry Larson is the editor-in-chief of the CU Independent. You can find links to his full story and more of his reporting at news.kgnu.org. Henry, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. For KGNU, I'm Alexis Kenyon. You're listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Jack Armstrong. Up next, it's Sports Talk. People keep asking me, Jimmy, who are you rooting for in the Super Bowl? And currently, I'm rooting for traffic lights in Philadelphia, because if the Eagles win, those things are going to have a bad time. Hello and welcome back to Sports Talk with Jimmy. I'm your host, Jimmy Searfoss, coming at you with the best sports show here on KGNU. I've got the best sports news and stories from across the front range. And make sure you pay close attention today because it might just help out your pocketbook. See, the big game is on Sunday, and right now America is wondering how it's going to play out. Whether the Kansas City Chiefs are going to defeat the Philadelphia Eagles or the Philadelphia Eagles are going to beat the Chiefs, and the city of Philadelphia is going to get destroyed. Now, whether you watch it for the game, or you watch it for the commercials, or you're going to watch it because Rihanna's in the halftime show, which we are all very, very excited about. And for those who like to bet on what song she's going to play to start, my bet would be on Please Don't Stop the Music, but that's not financial advice. But regardless of why you're watching this game, we can all at least enjoy the snacks and the food that come with watching the game. Now, personally... I'm more of a order a pizza in the first quarter and wait till 30 minutes after the game for it to arrive. But if that's not your groove and you like to go out and make your food or prepare it beforehand, you might want to pay attention because Wells Fargo released their annual report on how much food costs this year. And there's some interesting things to chew on on that list. Now, if you love chicken wings, you're in luck, pal, because you have 22% cheaper wings than there were in 2022. Right now, as of Monday... They're coming in at $2.65 a pound. Now, if you're a big guacamole guy, avocado, do go buy some avocados because they will run you 20% less than they would have a year ago today. However, if you're looking to have something to dip into that guacamole, your luck has run out because chips are 11% more expensive. And I'm afraid it only gets worse from there because the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics just labeled that the regular household cost of items has increased by 11.8% this year. Beer is 11% more expensive. Some soft drinks are up to 25% more expensive. Hot dogs are up 18.2% and cheese is up 12.8%. 
Thankfully, ground beef and burgers and bacon, while they're still up, are not as expensive as their previous high point from throughout the year. Now, what is causing these prices? Well, a lot of grocery stores are still experiencing a lot of supply chain issues. And you pile that on top of the inflation currently taking place, and you're going to have a higher price of food. Now, these percentages and prices are not set in stone. These kind of things fluctuate all the time, and just because it's one of the biggest weekends of the year doesn't make it an exception. So there is a possibility for some changes in the right direction or the wrong direction, but let's just all remember to have a good time and enjoy the return of Rihanna in the last football game of the year. And that is all the time I got for you today. I hope you all had a wonderful Friday, and to make sure you have a good weekend, and make sure to eat until your heart is content. But most importantly, make sure to tune in next week for more. I've been your host, Jimmy Searfoss, here on KGNU with Sports Talk with Jimmy. Have a good weekend. Time now for .org, spotlighting the work of local nonprofits and co-ops. Hi, this is Chris Schultz with KGNews.org, and I'm here with Philip Taylor from Mad Agriculture. Philip, you want to tell us a little bit about what you guys do? Yeah, so I'm Phil Taylor. I co-founded Mad Agriculture uh, with my wife, Nicole Brinks, back in 2018. The mission of the organization is to create a regenerative revolution in agriculture, um, which is a fairly high aspiration. I think it's a journey that we're just starting. Humanity is just beginning. What we do in the kind of practical sense is we help farmers transition and thrive in regenerative ag um, with a focus on organic agriculture. Um, and so we work all across the country, really getting to know farmers that share their same vision and values as us. And we help support them in whatever way we can. Um, we, we have three main ways that we support farmers. We have an on the ground kind of land and business team that helps farmers figure out that transition both from an ecological and financial way. And then we also have um, a capital uh, company called Mad Capital that helps finance that transition when needed. And then our third team is a Mad Markets team. And that team helps farmers find values aligned markets, connecting really the consumer back to the farm and the farm to consumer. And so we started in Boulder County in this awesome community that we live and still work a lot with local farmers. Um, and it's been an awesome place to begin. And I'm really proud to be here. I have to say, I'm not really familiar with regenerative agriculture. Can you describe a little bit about what that is? Yeah, regenerative agriculture, um, it's kind of the next big thing in agriculture. It really is the overall pursuit of asking the big questions of what does it mean to live in right relationship to place and how do we live in that reciprocity without um, extracting or destroying systems, but actually enlivening them. Regenerative agriculture and most of the kind of modern way we're learning about it is really focused on soil health principles. How do we really treat the soil well and restore its vitality? It extends well beyond that as well, beyond the soil to asking questions of like what healing needs to happen between people and place and between people and people. And so it addresses things like the problems of colonialism and, and displacement and dispossession of land. And so it's a, what I think of as a paradigmatic shift in the way that we see our relationship to the land and in, and in the way that we uh, cultivate the food that ultimately nourishes us. And I noticed you guys talk quite a bit about revolution. Do you want to talk about why you consider this a revolution? Revolution is uh, it's not only an inspiring word, but it's also a really explicit word. You know, when we think about building a revolution, we think about the things that actually create change, you know, and, and it's not that I'm trying to change um, everyone around me. It's really about changing ourselves. And it's about living into that. I think the deeper and better virtues of humanity 
And that's what inspires us, keeps us awake. And that's often how we connect with our farmers and how we serve. Sounds like you may actually take the techniques of uh, nonviolent revolutions. If you look at nonviolent revolutions, one thing that is characteristic of them is that sense of moral high ground. Again, not righteousness, but something that's invitational and calls humanity into the future. It has to bring wealth and justice to all, and particularly serving the marginalized. And so there are various ingredients of a revolution, and all of those ingredients that we've been kind of thinking about and studying, we, we sort of build into the way we work. Uh, how can the community support you guys, and how do folks who are looking to engage with what you do get a hold of you? Yeah, connect at madagriculture.org is the best way to get a hold of us. Um, then we'll direct whatever your inquiry is to the right place within the org. The best thing you can do to support us is support the farmers um, that are doing regenerative and organic ag uh, through the front range. You know, we work with a lot of them, but a lot of the farms that we serve, whether it's Speedwell or the Masa Seed Foundation or Yellow Barn or Dryland Ag Research or Olin Farms in Longmont, all of those farms um, have direct ways of engagement. And so for anyone that wants to get more involved in mad agriculture, get involved with those farms. And I would say above all, um, look for a local CSA and start eating locally um, from the farmers that are actually putting in the, the hard work, the blood, sweat and tears and share the same philosophy. I think that's the most powerful way is, you know, use, use your purchasing power to do the right thing and support the farmers and the land. I would just suggest, you know, civil engagement um, in the farmers that we support. And there's a lot of fantastic farmers and in Boulder County um, and beyond and look out for them, get to know them and uh, develop that relationship. You've been listening to KGNews.org. For more information on this organization or to listen to other episodes, please go to news.kgnu.org. That's all the time we have for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host, Jack Armstrong. Thank you to Stacey Johnson, Benito Lee, Jimmy Sirfoss, Juanita Rodado, Chris Schultz, and Alexis Kenyon for their help on today's program. Up next, it's Connections, and that's after these headlines from the BBC. BBC.